2015, I went down to visit Matt Black Systems in the southern part of the UK and had a great conversation with Andrew Holm and Julian Wilson. We spent quite a bit, we spent a whole morning actually talking about the evolution of Matt Black Systems. Five years later, we've got a massive lens on a really amplified lens on self-managed organizations and what they are, what they aren't, a lot of discussion and dialogue around that. So I'm delighted today on the Insight to Action and Inspirational Insights podcast program to have Andrew, Andrew Holm. The book is just out. It's 500% and we are looking to explore more deeply what happened inside Matt Black Systems. What was that evolution about? Uh, because there's a lot of companies today who are dying and don't actually need to. It's optional. Uh, survival is always optional in that sense, as I think was Edwards Demling once said. So, Andrew, welcome to the program. Hi, Don. Yeah. Nice <laughs> to be back. My second, second yes, podcast. That is true. We did one uh, back yeah. back in that period. It was a while time. back. It was. I'm a better man now than I was then. <laughs> Well, I know you're definitely more prolific. We now have the word out, you know, in print. So yeah. that, you know, that that's book pretty two. exciting. Pardon me? The second book. Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah, that's true. So let's get into this because we've got organizations who have a let's let's fix the holes in our existing hierarchical system. What did you learn about that kind of an approach inside Matt Black? First of all, better tell us what Matt Black is about because you're better equipped to do that than I am. And maybe just give a summary of the arc of the, of the journey of the company. Yeah, okay. So in a very, very um, potted sort of history of it. Um, I joined the company in about 2003. It was a, a very, it's a small company. It's about 30 people in it. And um, it had difficulties. It was having a challenge. And uh, its challenge was seen up or seen in what I call the contract properties of quality, delivery, price, and control. So they were all shining orange or red. And uh, the customers were telling us that as well. So um, I was brought into the company by one of the, in fact, the founder's son, who wanted some assistance. And um, it was a traditional company. Uh, I think most people would recognize it as hierarchical and functional, albeit it was small. I came from a multinational background. It represented much the same structure as a multinational, but on a smaller scale. Uh, as a sort of potted history, <clears throat> uh, we did what everybody else does, and that was we applied patches to the uh, existing model um, in terms of tools like Lean and Agile, whether it be Lean as Cells or Agile and Scrum, Essentially, they're much the same things, and we applied many of the tools from these uh, these toolkits, and we got to a point, and I called it the page thirty seven moment. Um, and page thirty seven is, uh, is the page in the new book, five hundred percent. And at that moment, we realised that all these patches had to be supported on in an ongoing basis, and if you didn't support them, the behaviours went back to the sweet spot of that model, and. We ran it for long enough to know that the behaviors were all drifting back. The page 37 moment was, it's a rethink, guys, because we ran out of cash. We'd spent a lot of money. A quarter of a million pounds is not so much to a lot of organizations, but to a small organization, it was a lot of money, essentially with two shareholders as well. And um, 
that money had been spent and it had failed to deliver any sustainable and meaningful improvements in terms of results that the customers could see and the shareholders could see and the suppliers could see and the employees could see. We then went on this journey to try and identify what the new world had to look like. And it wasn't something we sat down and designed on a fancy bit of paper and just implemented. It really was a journey of a thousand mistakes and a thousand lessons on how to do it and sadly how not to do it. But in fact, we, we, we wangled through very nicely and we got to a very different space. And that space we got to was based on a non-bureaucratic model. It wasn't hierarchical, it wasn't functional. It was like a network, a network of people working together with contracts. So they were transacting through a kind of free market contractual relationship within the business, as well as outside. In fact, the inside mimic the outside. So that's the kind of arc of the of the journey. Um, but I want to just go back to the starting place, if I may, Dan. And that is, is that, we are all tempted to patch an existing model because it's a, it's a framework which we're very familiar with, both throughout our school and our university, and we come through, we're taught it at, you know, at school, doing, doing our MBAs and all these things. We, uh, we, it reinforces that it's one, the one-size-fits-all, the reductionist sort of deterministic model which we apply. I've never done a turnaround yet and where the first move has not been to patch an existing model. In fact, I'm working one at the moment. And despite telling me they weren't doing it, they were doing it. Which makes really very interesting, just the power of the, the fact that it's so pervasive in our society that you patch the, what you've got. Because if you start to unwind what you've got, what you're left with, where does it leave you? It's like removing the crutch, the structure that holds the whole system together so having failed and the great thing we did was that when i joined the business we put in place measures and metrics at each stage so that if we made a change we could measure the result so we knew what we were doing so we knew what worked and what didn't work and by the way lean did work so it actually worked but the problem with it was, is it didn't work when you removed the support for it. And then it drifted back again. So it didn't sustainably work, but it did work. And we get then sort of, and it also worked on a sort of local basis. So in other words, you, you put lean into manufacturing and it had a direct effect. But did it have an effect at the whole company level? So it did improve things in manufacturing. You did get a benefit. So how, how did that impact, for instance, accounts? How did that impact design? How did that impact other areas of the business? And the truth is it didn't. And therefore, the promise of the, the benefits you got in, for instance, by implementing lean manufacturing weren't spread across the whole company. But the net effect is you didn't get the top line or the bottom line, as we call it, uh, improvements. The page 37 moment was exactly, exactly the moment when you realize that you can't go on patching. And actually, the solution doesn't lie in that direction. And it takes quite a lot of introspection to, one, identify you have uh, a model, and two, to identify that you're patching it, and three, to identify you failed. 
most companies want to patch their existing model. I love the way the way you frame it. It's almost like the powerlessness of the patch. Yeah. It's the most alluring place to go and the least effective. Yes, sadly it is. And and and, and I can completely understand why most companies choose to do that. So Taichi Ono in his in his book um, on lean in the Toyota production system identified seven ways. What he didn't nail was what I consider as the biggest waste, and that is bureaucratic waste. The, the waste of the bureaucracy, the cost of the number of people in the bureaucratic structures, which far outweighs any 5% saving you could make or 10% saving you could make in, in other parts of the business. It's huge. So now people may laugh at that because if they listen to you, they said, look, it's a 30 person company. How can there be, be bureaucracy and how can there be bureaucratic costs? Yeah. Elaborate on that, if you will. Hmm. So, you know, if you have a, a, let's take, for example, accounts. Accounts is a bureaucratic overhead. Yes, it needs done. I, I get, we, you know, we have, to, we have to have a, the question is, how do you minimize it? How can you do it in a different way so you can achieve the outcome without having a separate department of function, bureaucratic function. HR is another one. Now, HR is a, probably is a, is, a, is a larger company thing, but small companies still have a huge amount of time dedicated towards the management and control of human resources, as well as supervisory costs, um, costs of you know simple things, telling people what to do rather than them doing it. You know, simple management baseline supervisory management quality all these elements were built into the structure built into this sort of structure you have people in little boxes that person's a quality box this person's in the accounts box this person's an hr box this person's in a in, in, in a management or supervisory box and so it goes on but of course there's no flexibility of labor they're all on the little boxes and you can essentially separate them out into those boxes that add value and those boxes that don't add value to the outcome that the customers pay to pay for. There isn't any other money that's coming into the, the business other than through investors' capital or coming from customers. And if it's coming from customers, they're paying for products or services. And it's the people who are directly involved in product and, and services in sales, design, and manufacture that are the ones that count. Frankly, the rest aren't adding value. So we're talking about value added. Anything that's not value added falls into the bucket called bureaucracy. Go on. I think that's a good, that's a, that's a good starting point. I'll treat you. <laughs> okay, that's a, that sounds good. If we look at the arc of the journey and you look at the page 37 moment, yeah. was that foreseeable? Or was it one of those things where you slam against the wall, there's no money, and all of a sudden you realize, okay, patching's not the, 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 the solution. We need to completely rethink it. In other words, can companies avoid the page 37 moment without crashing into walls? Or, or is that kind of part of the process of recognizing that, that patching doesn't work? Is it pretty much inevitable? Well, first of all, I have to say they can avoid it. And secondly, I have to say they won't. Because they can avoid it by making some radical changes 
upfront in terms of their organizational structure and in terms of how they employ people and multi-scaling and things like that and integrating bureaucracy into the everyday, the everyday uh, work of, of the people writing the value. They won't do it um, because I haven't been on one change program where they haven't done it the other way. And that is putting in tools to patch existing problems like lack of leanness, lack of agility, which are an outcome of the old fundamental structure, which, by the way, wasn't meant to be designed to be lean and agile. It was meant to be designed to produce large quantities of standardized goods you know, with relatively cheap and compliant labor. That was the model. If you don't have these conditions, then you need a different model. Patching that model doesn't solve the problem. So you need something more. Will you go through the patching? I'm almost certain you will. Sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And there's some learning. Well, of course. Well, Mm. but that's the opportunity. Not all learn. Some some run in, uh, (laughs) run the opposite direction and and don't actually engage in that. Mm. You know, Matplot Systems has come up with a really unique model. And it's been data-driven. You, you know, you've documented everything so you could tinker with it, experiment, run an experiment, find out if it worked, watch the numbers, see what they tell you, and then, you know, change course accordingly. It sounds like when people talk about self-managed organizations, it sounds like it's very neat and tidy. I can just go and pull this governance model off the design shelf and put it, stick it in, you know, inside my company. I mean, Holacracy comes to mind. Uh, as being one of those kinds of, of models that sits out there. And I'm sure there are others, but it's, it's, or, or anything else that anybody else has designed that can sort of cherry pick. It, it's not that simple. What did you learn from the mess? What he merged in the messy part and what actually happened? What was the, the sequence of event? So first of all, you fight mess with mess. That sounds a bit strange, isn't it? To say that you fight mess with mess. <laughs> <laughs> the world is messy. And unless your assistants are capable of handling that mess, um, and if they're too rigid, they're not, then you're going to fail. So an element of, of the reality of that world is, is you're going to have to handle that mess with mess. And that flexibility is hugely important. When you design your models, your 2B is your, your dream, where you're going. It has to account for, I think it's was it William Ross Ashby, I think was his name, or his law of requisite variety. The, the system that you design has to be able to withstand the, the perturbations that are applied to it. And if it can't, it will fail. It's like over-optimizing a system for a certain, certain conditions. Yeah, Works terrifically well when these conditions exist and collapses when they don't exist. So designing a business, you have to design it to be resilient and to be capable of handling the everyday things that happen, like components not arriving in time, like people not, people being ill, like customers cancelling orders, like a project that you hoped to land doesn't land. All these messy things are part of the landscape of business and part of the messiness and its lack of order. 
So businesses fundamentally has to cope with the lack of order because you wake up in the morning, it isn't all ordered. It's just not like that. When you do your system design, you have to accept that. You have to accept that it ain't a perfect world. And it, it does look beautiful when you design a system and it's heavily optimized for certain conditions that exist at a time. And you say, oh, that'll be terrific. It doesn't take long for these conditions to change. So I think the other aspect of it that I think I'd like to, to explore a bit is that that messy zone that we talk about is is also the place where individually or personally, you, you know, the face gets put against the mirror. And mm. you say, who do you want to become in the mm. mess? You know, it's the skills that go with ambiguity and the skills that go with uncertainty because because it is not certain. It is territory that's new. It's unfamiliar. There's not necessarily a rule book. You have to kind of really be mindful about the kinds of decisions you're making and, and watch and observe what happens with each one as opposed to just making them and then pretending that there's no consequence to it, which, which is what happens in a lot of organizations. So, so in terms of the personal journey that you witnessed in the 30 group, you know, 30 some odd employees, what happened? What, what surfaced? What showed up? Probably the most interesting thing that showed up is that very few chose to be in that mess. When given the option to stay and fight the mess or leave, most left. Because it wasn't their mess and it wasn't a mess they wanted to, to engage with. And we all have that choice. And I suppose that choice is the difference between self-leadership and self-management. Self-management is the you get given the destination and it, it, you live in the journey mess. Whereas self-leadership is you choose the destination and the journey mess. And uh, you know, if you want autonomy, mastery and purpose which I think was part of Dan Pink's thesis. I think you end up in a place where the individual has to choose to be there, choose to take on that mess. Otherwise, they slowly, no, they don't, they quickly disengage. If it's not their choice, they quickly disengage from the, the effort and uh, uh, skills and talents they need to apply in order to get through the mess. Once they've chosen that that's the mess they want to, to play in, then, honestly, things get relatively easy because they bring their six human talents to it. Curiosity, their imagination, their creativity, their, their realization skills, their cooperation skills. And they, they really, they, they, once they bring these skills, they fight the mess with a mess and the battle is won. It's the failure to bring these skills and it's sort of what I call a disease of the 20th century which is disengagement and that disengagement is is, is, is so much to do with a tra the traditional organizational model which bizarrely looks so ordered and yet fails to, to handle the mess in its orderings and um you can quite see why it doesn't fit today it doesn't quite see why it doesn't fit into the knowledge economy and many other economies as, as they transition from a kind of post-industrialization, which is, you know, very fixed and standardized. Um, in fact, the book has a very interesting story about uh, an area which I knew something about in shipbuilding, because I started my career off in shipbuilding as a design engineer. And um, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting story because it really nails how 
that shipbuilding with its traditional hierarchical, functional and heavily demarked model, very heavy demarked model, demarcation, failed to live with the mess, failed to achieve uh, its potential and collapsed. It didn't take long. You know, it's collapse was in 10, literally 10, 20 years, that a huge industry which employed vast tranches of people, which, um, <clears throat> which I think, I think it was 20% of global shipping was produced in the flight. And that turned to nothing, almost nothing, in a relatively short period of time as the model collapsed. Now, people think it was an argument between workers and uh, and their management. That 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 was a function of the model and wasn't a function of the the battle between the people. The model was driving the behaviours. The bureaucracy simply was overwhelming, and eventually it, it collapsed. Um, when we talk about self leadership, then what are the mm-hmm. what are the core characteristics that you would wrap around that term? First of all, it's the individual has to choose, and that's essential. They're choosing the mess they want to get into. Now, that's very rare. In most businesses, they don't choose. They're actually given a mess, and they have to then make the best of it. Now, in Matt Black Systems, the, the move that we made was they had to choose. that We didn't constrain them to what the business did at that time. If they wanted to start a company off to sell fishing rods, they could do that. It was their choice. Equally, if they chose to remain servicing the remaining market that was there or the existing market was there, that was their choice. So then once it was their choice, self-management then follows on for that because the, whereas self-management is to journey, yeah, self-leadership is to outcome. So they would automatically bring their self-management. And I think that's why self-management has a hole in it at the moment because self-management doesn't encompass most important part of it, which is the choice to do, the free will, unencumbered choice to choose what you do. I know there's a company in the Basque area of Spain that makes choice the the, the actual foundation, but other than that, uh, you don't see it. No, so, the choice yeah. is essential. The choice, not not process choice, the outcome choice. So people say, "Oh, we've got choice." But the choice is at process level. You can choose what activities you're doing, but not choose the destination. Mm-hmm. So it's about you're here to make cakes, yes, well, you can make the cake the way you like it. And I say, yeah, but what happens if they don't want to make cakes? Well, they have to make cakes because that's what we do. They wouldn't mm-hmm. have joined us otherwise. Yeah. And I go, hmm, yeah, I think they joined you for a job, actually, because it was an economic imperative. I'm not sure they joined you because they love this kind of cake you're making. One of the things that that you did extremely well when I look at all the interviews I've had with companies all over and conversations I've had, I'm a big fan of oversight. I'm a big fan of stepping back, seeing how things are unfolding, working with both data as well as intuition to sort of gauge where are things, what's what's going on here? Because in the realm of uncertainty is the zone that says where do you have to have enough certainty that you've got a foundation for exploring you know that confidence for stepping into the 
you know, the, the uncertain zone. So whether you call it psychological safety or whatever it happens to be, oversight is key. And you did that extremely well by stepping back multiple times and saying, let's try this, let's step back and take a look at it. What's the compass that you use to decide, okay, we're going in the right direction or we're going in the wrong direction? Because that right, wrong value judgment can be tricky sometimes. It can be it could be right and wrong direction simultaneously. It it looks right, but it turns it feels wrong. Or it could be you know there's a number of nuances to that. So talk about that a bit, please. What did you use as a compass? Okay, I'm just got a little bit of a story here, a little bit of a, an arc of narrative. So data is the past, yeah, as intuition is the future. You yeah. don't have data about the future. Okay. You can make anything up in your head. You can do what you like. You don't have data about the future. Everything in the future has a probability associated with it. And human beings are really great at it. And the more they exercise their intuition, the better they get. But intuition is not, a, it's not a, a childish thing. Intuition is taking all the what-if statements for the data that you've got and then analysing it in a future perspective and coming out with what is your best judgment. So for me, it's about a little bit of a design process. You start off with the problem definition. You then say, well, what are all the options that are available to solve this problem? And then you go, what is of this list of possible solutions, which is your preferred one? Now, the the great thing is there isn't a preferred one in the sense that you don't know if it's going to work. But it's one that you are going to apply first and monitor the results from. So intuitively, we do this very well. And so fundamental to the future and to business design has to build in human intuition. It is absolutely essential. And I will argue black and white against anybody who tells me it's not, because then I'll ask them a simple question. What do you base your future on? And they will say the past. And I will say that is extremely dangerous. The weather tomorrow is going to be based on yeah, the weather of, ye- of, of yesterday. Really? Because I doesn't have very much from where I'm sitting in the middle of the UK. So we do intuit it, and our brains are designed to intuit it. And I think if you trust your intuition, you get a long way, and you get better if you exercise the muscle. But the intuition is based on data, past data, yes, for sure, yeah, and future imagination, for sure, and curiosity. So the more you read, the more you the more curious you are, you can then bring your imagination to bear upon it to solve the problem. The reason why future data is important is that you're looking for obvious hockey sticks, what I call the hockey sticks of improvement, which uh, is there's a dot, 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 generally improving, and then suddenly your intuition, your intuition takes you to, it's going to be here, it's going to be massive, it's a straight line in the vertical direction upwards. And you're going, mm, yeah. See, that's not how natural systems work. It just doesn't work like that natural systems. They tend to be exponential. 
huge amounts of hard work to go in at the start, producing a few results, slowly, 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 they improve. So I don't know if that characterizes it well enough. Well, it, it does a beautiful job of reframing, you know, the role of data in the decision-making. And I know just based on the process that Gary Klein mapped out in naturalistic decision-making in terms of how your intuition uses data, it, yes. fits, it fits perfectly because it's, it's working off of an, you know, a, a database that sort of filters through what's going to work, what's not. Uh, and I think there's also, you know, it's that blend between between that bank of experience, but also that capacity to keep clear in, in one's mind, this is the mindset part of it, to keep clear in one's mind and be able to sense uh, oh. what's ahead, you know, the foresight mm-hmm. aspect of it, which you can't do when you're busy mentally wrestling down all sorts of things. It's work that's best done gardening or when you're not thinking about it, you know, when you're intentionally taking your mind off it. So, I think also it's important. I mean, um, so I started from very much a kind of business design perspective because that was my background, but Julian started from a kind of, humanities perspective and I think it was that combination that was really uh, quite an important combination as it turned out because I actually had to design a model for a human being before I designed the model well it was not before it was together so what does your model of a human being look like Andrew and to start with it looked like a stick man you know what I mean it, it was just rubbish but over time I developed as my business models or my organization models, I like to call them because it's not just business, it's just any organization. As we we develop better models, I was developing a better human model and also in parallel with that, better organizational models that could be human beings. And I eventually came up with my own model, which is, I looked at a number of models, but I found that the existential model was the one that, that I liked the best. And uh, I, I changed it and made it my own. And um, basically motion away from the four fundamental anxieties, motion towards the four fundamental desires, as I called it, and then had a, at least had something which I could then understand how, what motivated human beings and why purpose was so important and why relationships were so important and why being isolated was a negative thing and how we had to handle, you know, that, that isolation anxiety how people required structure, you know, freedom brought anxiety. And therefore, once you've kind of got the basics right, you say, okay, well, I do need to have some structure. I do need to include a purpose. So it all became a bit like a journey, you know, a journey with a group of friends. And you begin to understand, because you've got a psychological model, how it all plugs together and how then that links to your design of organizational model. And that's, I think, an important part that I think is missing in a lot of organizational design. They haven't made, haven't got a model for a human to start with. Not grounded in that, which is critical. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew, companies during this COVID pandemic have had some interesting reactions because with the remote working, some of them have decided to go for the time clock. So if you, you know, tell report when you go to the bathroom, it's a nine to five thing or, and, and if you're not putting in your hours then you're not productive, that's a, a rather unfortunate assumption, I believe. Let's talk a bit about, if we can, what, where is the value being held and, and uh, how do companies turn that into practical? We've, we've this great time of reinventing it. What, what's the opportunity here for that? Yeah, okay. So a um, couple of things on that one. So yes, companies, I think, even measure the clicks on people's computers. 
you know, to work out whether they're at their desk or not. That is the extent of the complete madness that uh, we have managed to bring into our world. Clicks per minute is now something that companies measure to make sure that people are actually by the computer, by their computers. This is the what I call the time-based culture, where actually an employee's a company pays for an employee's time, and it's up to the, the company to use that time efficiently and effectively. That's how the traditional model looks at people. They're a, a mechanism. They're a, a cog in a wheel, and you need the cog in the wheel sitting at the desk and clicking in order for the system to work. Of course, the reality of it is that that's nonsense because people aren't cogs and wheels and people have to bring their curiosity, imagination, creativity, cooperation and all these uniquely human skills in order to extract value from them. We're either going in a direction which is so extreme in the measurement of hours, you know, or companies are rethinking or starting to think about actually how do you measure value? How is that done? Because hours are not important. And also, they more importantly, they rob people of their productivity. So if I bring a new idea, I'm clever, I do things different ways. If I bring that to my work, I don't benefit at all because I've still got to sit there for eight hours clicking my mouse. Yeah, I mean, I have a smart way of doing it. Of course, I get a machine to do it and keep the company happy. But there we are. But that's, that's the way you've got to, we've got to say, how do we encourage people to bring their creativity, their imagination, their cooperation to work? And that requires a different system of measurement. That system of measurement is not time. Because a person can sit there for eight hours, get paid for eight hours and do nothing and contribute nothing. But value is a very different measure. Value it's when a, co- a person contributes to the overall organization and is measured the same way as the organization. First thing you can do is say, well, well, that's complicated, Andrew. And I say it is. It's much more complicated than the hours-based system because all you have to do in the hours-based system is get people to clock in and clock out. But then it's your problem to work out what they're doing in between the clocking in and clocking out times. So meantime, in the other system, you use contracts because that's the tool to generate a system of value, yeah, internal and external contracts. Now, when we did this at Matt Black Systems, we didn't know the importance of contracts. These internal agreements yeah, in which there's, there's two parties involved and a swap of resources, so swapping an outcome which has been produced for money for a compen- or a consideration, yeah, started to value what people did. Even if it was really rough at the very start and messy, that didn't much matter because it soon balanced over time with that, with the, the wider marketplace outside the business. And actually people's magic and time and whatever system was in place could get valued. The key was the shift from process to outcome. So process is to time as outcome is to contract because the outcome is what satisfies the contract. And frankly, nobody's interested in the time. 
So when you go to a shop and buy a cake, you don't care one all the ingredients that went into it, the processes went into it. You, know, you don't care about any of the time went into it. You just care about the price of the cake and the cake. And that's the thing that's going to satisfy your contract for a cake. So that was the first step, let's say, of changing an hours-based culture. I call it a currency of hours to a currency of value. And the main tool yeah, was the removal, main tools, was the removal of the old tools, the clock and the wall, and the replacement of the new tools, the contract. I don't know if that kind of makes the point. It absolutely does. And it, it sits, it's a layover with their, or a companion to what Doug Kirkpatrick talks about in, in terms of self-managed organizations in the Morningstar Institute. They have colleagues, let, colleague letters of understanding, clues they're called. Yeah. <laughs> but but okay. that's exactly what they do. They, they outline what's my commitment to you. So the word accountability gets replaced by the word commitment. I'm making a commitment to you. And if I can't meet my commitments, it's my responsibility to communicate that and, and explain why. You know, I mean, it's a very different thing around, you know, accountability being power, you know, reporting to power versus reporting to, you know, peer to, more peer-to-peer relationship. Uh, the, the challenge with a clue, of course, is that there's no flow of value with it. Whereas what we mm. wanted to do is we wanted to ensure there was a flow of value back. So I supply you a cake, yeah, you supply me with money, and the money values the cake because you cannot calculate value add without the transfer of value, without the assessment of value. So a clue didn't work for us. Right, right. What worked for us was only the contract, and the contract only worked if it was a two-way transfer of resources, the cake out, the money in. The money values the cake. So there is a quite a gap in terms of the approach. So if we go back to the concept of people not getting paid for the value they bring inside organizations, how do you define value in that context? First of all, you have to define value. And I think that's a really important part of it. So in other words, if if you're a a one-man band or an electrician or a plumber or, or any one-man band, you get at the end of the month to value yourself. And it's quite easy because you look at the invoices you sent out and you subtract from that all the the invoices you received or the bills you received. And you then, in your black box, your, your little kitchen or whatever it is, your black box, can work out how much value you added between the resources that you purchased and the resources you sold. The question was, how do you bring that concept inside? So we've talked about that earlier through contracts. Then when you actually know what value somebody's adding, then how do you share it out? Because it's not all about them. There's other people in the business that are also contributing. So the key is obviously they've got to be paid for their contribution, but also there's a lot of IPR that's involved, which not necessarily is theirs, which they must pay royalties for and licenses for. So when they do eventually make that profit, yeah, that profit isn't just taken home in a pot. That profit has to be shared out. And we call it the 520s. And if, you can, if you're clever, you work that out and you get 100. The 520s. <laughs> so the, five, the 520s were 
goes to the employee to take home in their pocket. 20% goes to the investment pot for, in effect, employee, but for their virtual company, because we work on a a cell-based system with each person in a cell. We call that a virtual company. Then you have 20%, which goes to the group of virtual companies that make up the whole company. Another 20% goes to the investors because they demand a return, which is entirely reasonable because they're risking their capital. And sadly, 20% goes to the tax man. So why is that important? It's important because it changes the social contract. Because 60% of the profit that's generated goes to the employees in some sense under their control. 20% goes to the investors and 20% goes to the tax man. I can't really do very much about that. So it's entirely transparent. The employee gets a basic salary. We have to pay that because we're, we are forced to pay that as an entitlement because of the statutory minimum wage that exists within our jurisdictions, whether that be a Canadian, American, a British or a European jurisdiction, we've got to pay that. We also pay another um, uh, another multiple of that based on a person's, what we call an employment disposition. And that's whether they, they are a, a, a pre-follower, a follower, a changer, a creator of models. And um, we found that to be a, a simple and effective way of, of building in somebody's talents and skills and making it generally align with let's say, a a talent set and rewarding curiosity so that there was a a benefit to people who were creative, imaginative, and curious. Otherwise, people, if they weren't rewarded for it, didn't bring that to work. So it was important that they were rewarded for it because it was the behaviours we were looking for. So you can see that the actual model for rewarding system one wasn't based on time anymore because we didn't care about time if they spend if they spent an hour at work and achieved all the goals then brilliant they're fantastic and they spent 50 hours of work as long as they didn't breach the european working hours directive then i wouldn't worry that's their choice It's, it's very much their choice but changing that to this value based model the currency of value allowed us then to change the, the social contract and reward people who, who were adding the value more. I'm of the opinion also that the investors also add value by risking their capital. So, you know, many would say, oh, that's not right. The investors are getting 20%. And I say they deserve 20% because there, there, is, there is capital being put at risk and that capital cannot be mispriced. And it's got to be a fair return. So the key is transparency. There's nothing else. There's nothing hidden. There's not an assessment done, a magic assessment done by a manager. You, you simply work through the process. It's very well explained and uh, documented. And uh, if you want an increase in your salary, it's very clear what you've got to do. It's under your control, totally. What it does is it brings it into one central focus you, to yourself, the, the yep. autonomy, mastery, and I mean, it's all wrapped into one uh, yep. one simple framework, and that's you. you yes, know that, absolutely. Yeah. It's not a complicated framework. It's a simple framework. It's a framework that probably most people would understand. It applies to the company as a whole, so nothing new. It's just bringing that down to uh, to individual level and making it transparent. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing you've described in that is is also the shift between competition within to yep. collaboration toward a larger goal, which is uh, by far the more inspirational approach, far more engaging than than coming up with a way to compete and, and so forth, which really actually is, is a it's almost like a, a way to minimize talent and, and because you're, you're constantly eroding creative creative juices that way. It's very, it's, a very, it's a very interesting point you make there because um, part of the accusations of our, our approach was that uh, it would uh, encourage selfishness mm-hmm. and that uh, there would be each person would act in their own selfish best interest. Of course, the bizarre paradox in that is exactly they did exactly that. They acted in their own selfish best interest. Yeah. But that was to be unselfish. So bizarrely, it was much better for them as individuals to join together in groups and attract work and contracts, which they couldn't do as an individual. And therefore, cooperation became the key skill. But it wasn't until we split the organization up into single units to address this selfishness that we got this unselfish behavior. Quite extraordinary and paradoxical. And beautiful to watch in terms of oversight, you know, overseeing a dynamic and, yeah. and just watching it emerge and finding, you know, something, oh my gosh, couldn't, couldn't have planned that. No, but that's right. And of course, it was the, the irony is it was the opposite of what everybody told us. And honestly, it was, it was the opposite of what we believed. Which so is even fight. better. It is. Yeah. I said, well, I'll be selfish. So I'll fight amongst each other. And you go, no, that didn't happen. <laughs> I think that goes back to something Umberto Maturana said is that, you know, people will cooperate. That is their true nature. It's, it's yes. not, you know. Going back to the, the, the model which we talked about earlier in the, in the podcast about the existential model, that is built into the existential model through, you know, the isolation and cooperation element of it. You know, both are uh, ends of the same continuum and we're driven to cooperate. We're not driven to be, isol- to be isolationist. And it, you know, if you just rely and say, well, it's just natural behavior, this is it's driven naturally. And you, you, you soon get to relax about it and go, yeah, but it's going to happen anyway. And in fact, in many ways, in traditional organizations, I question why you need team, team building uh, uh, events. Why do you need team building events when people's natural propensity is to form teams? and to cooperate. And they're driven to do it by their anxiety and their motivation. Yeah. Thank you. I love that. And, and, and here's why I love it because I, you know, I would get called as an outside consultant, you get called to do team building exercises. It's like, there's no way I'm not interested. What I am interested in is what do you want to accomplish? Uh, Because it's going to take a team to do that. So whatever it is you want to accomplish that, you know, some sort of project you've got going on inside that requires a team effort and it's not happening, then that becomes the focus. And the effect is team, you know, to strengthen team. But that's not the point and purpose. You know, the point and the purpose is to get something done. And it's, it's fascinating how many companies still think in those kind of terms where where you're you're coming in and if you if you focus on team building it's going to change how this particular project is running when in fact there's other variables involved in why this project is is or is not performing the way it could 
But if you haven't got teams being formed, successful teams being formed, question you have to ask is why not? Yeah. What is it in our structure and our dynamics yeah. which is breaking these essentially human, um, how do you say, human skills, human natures, human, I can't think of a better word, of forming and cooperating in teams. So there's something disrupting that. Yeah. If you put a few human beings together, in one week, they will all be cooperating. Maybe the odd one won't be, but on the whole, they will be to a common goal. So what is it in our businesses? And I think it's, it's all about, it's all about reductionism. It's all about process, breaking the process down, putting people in separate boxes and distracting them from the outcome. And quite frequently, rewarding their individualism over record, over rewarding an eff, a, t- a collective effort, you know, actually getting yeah. things done, you know, at that level. But so. I think the, the, what we found is the most important part of was first of all rewarding the individual. Hmm. So you can't have a team without individuals. Yeah. They said there's no I in team. They tell me, well, that's complete nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> there, there definitely is an I in a team. Yeah, the fact is, is that that I is so important and the team is an emergent property. You cannot touch a team. A team is something which is made out of individuals and each individual on that team is hugely important. In fact, you can have the best individuals in a team and yet the worst team and the worst individuals in a team and yet the best team. Because the team performance is an emergent property. You know, Real Madrid proved that, you know, I mean, it's a perfect illustration of that because they had the best players in the world for Real Madrid. And it took them quite a while to reach that emergent level, you know, because it, you had, it was the yeah. perfect storm of egos on top of that. So That's <laughs> right. And you don't know. I mean, and, and only the best managers have got this concept of, of, of that emergence, that, that, that different level and actually building a team, constructing the team, not necessarily of the best players. Yeah. Sometimes of a real mismatch. And yet it works. And yet it works. Yeah. And this is a wonderful thing about being human, isn't it? It, it is, absolutely. It is the most pivotal part of, 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 of change, and that is the contract. If you don't have the contract, and that, that, that transfer of value both ways, you can't change your organization. You can't be a self-leading organization. You can be a self-managing organization. So a self-managing organization, essentially, as, as, as you know, is about process and not outcome. Self-leading com- is about outcome and, and process follows. And it's that which is the huge difference. So do you capture your contracts? And they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we, go, yeah, we capture orders. Orders, not contracts. Uh, you know, and do you capture your contracts internally? Oh, we've got clues. And I think, well, that's a start. Well done but it, it doesn't allow you to make the shift. It just keeps you where you are in, the, in the, the traditional paradigm. It's only when you move the other way, yeah, to the scary land, yeah, that actually you'll get real change. So I think that's an interesting point. We've just got to crystallize out. 
one of the things businesses tended to do is separate itself from the rest of the world, either that or try and run it. So there's there's two aspects of it. And 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 we've got in the world today a lot of political <laughs> governance models that are being put to the test and let and may we say epically failing in some instances. So uh, what's the connection between rethinking a business or reinventing completely a business model and and looking at, you know, stretching out to the governance level of a nation? Yeah, okay. Small question. <laughs> yeah, that's a, you know, kind of solving world why, peace. Why not? We're here. Why so. not? No, that's it. So <laughs> what I, I think is important is... is to look at the fundamental patterns involved. So what are the patterns at each level? Are there common patterns? Are we trying to reinvent the wheel? Or actually, is it just a different size wheel at different levels? And then um, when you look at nature and using the example of a, a fern, a fern is actually built up of ferns, little ferns, which are built up of more little ferns. In fact, they're called fronds. The whole fern is just, is, is a fractal. It's a fractal pattern. It's an extremely efficient way of building larger things from smaller things. Nature uses them a lot in snowdrops and, uh, uh, sorry, and many, many other things, including um, plants and animals. Build, they form the building blocks of natural systems. And why do they do that? because it's very energy efficient to do it. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can take a bunch of stuff which is common and familiar at one level and apply it in scale to the next level up. So then we don't have to create a whole new language and uh, you know, at, at, whether it be a regional or global level, it's not a new language. It's the same language as we're familiar with at the bottom. Couple more questions, 500%. What does that refer to? Why did you call your book that? Okay, so yeah, it's a very good point. So that was the productivity we incre uh, increased. We got a 500% increase in productivity by deploying our new model. In fact, it's more than that now, but um, we got a 500%. And that was in the over, year over year? It was over a period of, let's say, it's very difficult to put your thumb on it. Yeah. That's, because <laughs> we were sort of, wandering around the dark because we didn't know where we were going. Certainly from where we started to where we ended up, we got a 500% improvement. No, we didn't go for that. We, we just went for, if we got 20%, we were going to win. You get 500%. It was like, well, that's madness. It just shouldn't be, it, it shouldn't be possible, Donna. It really shouldn't be possible. And it was astonishing. So what I love about that is that, uh, first of all, if you aimed for 500%, you would, you would get it at a higher cost. It would be an expensive yeah. venture. But when you don't, you know, this is where the whole, there's a lot of confusion, which is another program, but there's another, a lot of confusion around being, you know, sort of looking at outcome and being attached to achieving a fixed outcome yeah. versus being, having a goal, you know, or sort of, some people don't like the word goal, but aiming for something that works efficiently on a multiple levels and getting that kind of outcome is, is a sweet, uh, sweet deal. <laughs> it is a sweet deal. And, and, and especially as it, well, it was, it was a dream. It's a like, fantasy. It was yeah. nothing more. How could, 
but it, what we find it was, it was it was achievable and very achievable, which says a lot about then why aren't we why aren't we exploring more models? Why aren't we exploring? Because given that we've proven that it is done, it's doable, why do people stick with the old model? What, you, you're not interested in 500% improvement productivity? That's incredible. You're not interested in saving your industry? We, I don't understand. Why, why not? But it's the power of the, the current model and the, its bureaucratic nature. People in charge are, tend to be the bureaucrats. And it's not in their best interest, if I'm brutally honest. Not because they're bad people. I don't want to say that at all. They're not. No. It's just not in their interest to, to see uh, the model develop in, in the direction that Matt Black's assistants take, have, has taken. Because we don't have a bureaucracy. We don't have any management. We don't have anything. You know, people do their own accounts. They're responsible for their accounts. We don't have this cabal of, of people who are in supervisory and rules oversight. It's a network. Let's just go back to what you talked about at the beginning to close off. And that is that you talked about HR, you talked about some of the, you know, financial that is now embodied in, as I understand it, software. It's embodied in software, but it's more important than that. It's embodied in in, in the humans. So the software is just a tool. Uh, You know, it's, it's, yes, it's important, but it's not that important. What is important is that it's embedded, embedded in the individuals. So if there's an HR issue, then, it's the people who make the products and design the products and who actually do it all. They're the ones that solve that problem. If there's an accounting problem, you know, each person in our business does their own accounts every month. They're, you know, they're fabulously competent at stripping a P&L account and balance sheet. They know exactly what's going on. You're not going to pull the wool over their eyes. So the IT systems gives them some structure, but it's, it's, it's not the most important part of it. Any advice you'd give to a business owner whose company has not met yet hit the wall, but, but the wall is in sight and, and um, they're contemplating doing things differently, which is like almost a requirement these days. But uh, what advice would you give them? Be bold. You know, the, the chances of them actually being bold, you know, I understand the anxiety that uh, comes with company management and company ownership. It's a you know a huge amount of anxiety, and it's often a lot of people who are involved in that space as consultants don't quite understand what that that weight of responsibility looks like and feels like when you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, almost screaming because you know you've got to pay the wage bill for the month, or you're running out of cash, or you know there's a, there's a product that's gone through failure and failed test, and you know it's a very very challenging. But you know, two things is you fight mess with mess, and you be bold. And don't be over controlling. And the problem is, is that a lot of managers and a lot of behaviors are reinforced by our universities and schools. And it's all about control and it's all about central control. And it's all about leadership. And I say it's not about leadership. It's about self-leadership. It's about encouraging each individual to lead themselves and, and, and to manage themselves. So, so bizarrely, the paradox of leadership is, is, is to destroy leadership. The, the, you know, if you want to be a great leader, then then distribute leadership. Ah, oh, beautiful. This is where the starfish comes in. One of the hardest things to do, Donna, is that, you know, when you have a, a network organization, there becomes an emergent property, like a, a, 
like it's its strategy isn't a strategy which is developed from the top it's an emergence from the bottom it's an emergent property it's so tempting to step in and sort of own it and kind of tinker show with it, it. And, and tinker with it and like <laughs> and it's the last thing you can ever do because it's such a precious thing it's like a kind of it's like a beautiful thing you've got and, and yet you can't touch it it's difficult to explain it's like a, a Mexican wave in a in a huge stadium. You know, can you explain the Mexican Mexican wave in a person? You can't. You can't. You can't. I haven't got the language to explain what a Mexican wave looks like at an individual level. And yet, clearly, in front of your eyes is this emergent property, which is this Mexican wave that's circling around. And it's that which you have to be brave enough not to tinker with and just to leave even although you see it going wrong at the emergent level, it might not be at the local level. So what you see as an emergent property is not necessarily a function of, the, of, of, of what's, what's functional behaviour, which is underpinning it. So be careful. All right, there you go. That's, that's uh, food, for, food for the future, as it were. Um, yes. Andrew, the book of it is available in what format? you know, the usual, you know, yeah, Amazon. It's on, it's on Amazon. It's a, in Kindle format. You have to type in 500% how two pioneers transform productivity. I think it's a, it's a story. It's an interesting story. I think it will help people who are interested in, in, in business as a whole and organizational design, getting the best out of people. And I think it brings some nice language and distinctions to it all. You know, how the measures, which measures we use, how we use them, um, yeah. As well as what I call the famous page 37 moment. <laughs> you hit and you realize it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I, what I appreciated about myself, you know, I'm reading the book myself is that it walks you into the mess. So, so much for the delusion of it being all nice and tidy, it walks you straight into the mess. And that allows you to kind of see what are the underlying principles that start to emerge through it. So that's a real experience in emergent stuff is, you know, as you read it, you can sort of see what's, how things are showing up. And, And fortunately you're able to identify them, not just through data, but also because you have, you know, your intuitive instincts um, working as well. Yeah. 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 Right. Andrew, thanks very much for being on the program. Delight- delighted to have you here again. I'll also put the, the uh, link for the previous conversation we had quite a number of years back yes. available for people to, uh, to take a look at. So. Great, Donna. Well, thank you very much. I hope, well, I hope people do something about it because I think we, you know, it's time in our world now. We've got to make this move. It's, it's apposite. The time is apposite. I'm Donna Jones. I provide personal growth for business, mentoring leaders and decision makers who are really ready to adapt their awareness and inner skill set to both meet and match the complexity and speed of change. I also bring intuitive insight into decision making and leadership expansion so that collaboration can benefit from conflicting perspectives and higher trust. By embedding a healthy balance between certainty and uncertainty, growth at a personal and organizational level, has a serious chance. Contact me through LinkedIn or through www.fromInsight2Action.com. And it's Donna, D-A-W-N-A.